Welcome to Human Matters. I'm Deborah Stone, and this podcast explores the new insights that research brings into how we understand what it is to be human. We're coming to you from the studios of the Australian Catholic University, a hub for humanities study. The words gold rush have an immediate association, even in the minds of those who know little history. We think of daring adventurers crossing oceans to make their fortunes, of hardship and nation building and the magnetic attraction of finding a nugget that could change a life. We've been told the story of the gold rush over and over again, but ACU historian Dr Ben Mountford has found a story that hasn't been told. Ben and co-editor Stephen Tufnell have recently published A Global History of Gold Rushes, which brings a new international perspective on what has so often been told as a national story. Ben is here on Human Matters to give us a new perspective on what the gold rush can tell us about migration, internationalism and the human experience. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here, Deborah. Thank you. Why do we need another book on the gold rush history? Well, it's a really good question, Deborah. I mean, almost immediately after they happened, people started writing books about the gold rushes. Um, for those people who weren't spending their time busily digging gold, uh, there were a large majority who were sitting around writing about the digging of gold. So w- within about 10 years of the discovery of gold in California in 1848, we had something like 280 books written about the gold rush in California. Uh, a little later, when we get gold found in New South Wales and Victoria, um, books about the Australian gold rushes start to appear in French, in German, in Norwegian, in Italian, uh, piling up alongside the, the many books that are being published in London about gold at the time. So, so even by the 1860s, you could say the shelves are full of books about the gold rushes. So it's a very good question why we would need another one. Um, historians have been adding to that pile ever since. I guess myself and my collaborators on this book, what we what struck us about being missing about the history of the gold rushes was really their global resonance. Um, you know, if one of the big questions we're trying to understand in humanities today is this connected global world that we're all part of, um, in looking for the roots and the history of that world, it struck us that the gold rushes had really been missed by historians, but they were that, this important moment uh, in the interconnection of the world that needed further study. So we've tended to tell the gold rush as a national rather than an international story. Why have we done that? I mean, I, I guess that in essence it's because gold rushes are certainly very important both for the making of the nations themselves in which they take place, um, but also for the making of national identity in those places. So if you were to go to the United States or Australia or New Zealand or Canada or South Africa, the story of the gold rushes and the kind of changes that they bring about are, are really essential to understanding how those nations eventually come together. Um, gold rushes obviously generate great wealth, but they also draw in uh, immense populations. They encourage the development of transport and communication. Um, and they, they connect the coast to what were often fairly remote or disconnected parts of those countries. So in, in national terms, the gold rushes are quite important in binding those countries together. Uh, at the same time, they're very important in creating the sorts of ideas of national character that a lot of us take for for granted today. So in the American case, for instance, uh, the gold miners who go to California have long been associated with, with independence, with freedom, with that idea of the sort of self-made American um, toiling away in the dirt in the American West to find their fortune. 
in Australia, we, we have our own take on the gold rush myth. You know, the idea of the diggers as being a symbol of mateship, of egalitarianism, of freedom. Um, and so these, these national myths um, are also very much bound up in the making of gold rushes. And so th- what the book tries to do is, is not in any way to discount that. We, you know, we agree that gold rushes are very important from a national and national character perspective, but, but to also think about how that takes place as part of a global process. So what were the international changes that were caused or stimulated by the gold rushes? Well, it's a good question. I mean, um, in terms of scale, just to give you some sort of sense. So between the discovery of gold in California in 1848 and the end of the 19th century, the, la- the last there are a few minor ones afterwards, but the last great rush is really recognised as being to the Klondike in the northwest of Canada at the end of the 19th century. Um, and during that period, more gold is found than in the previous 3,000 years. So the, the, the pulling all this gold out of the ground and it's circulating around the world has a number of really significant changes that we try to get to grips with in the book. Um, the first one is migration. So the gold rushes triggered a remarkable uh, a human migration on a scale that we really hadn't seen before in world history. This, this vast number of people getting up and leaving their home societies and travelling often enormous distances to these, to these gold diggings on other sides of the world. So migration is one of the first um, key ones that we see. Uh, with those people, of course, comes communications and transport. So uh, the means for getting these people across the world improves. We get great improvements in things like shipping. Uh, gold contributes to the development of the railways, which has to carry um, people in and the goods in, and, of course, the gold and the um, other materials out of the gold regions. So, so transport becomes very central. Um, we also one of the things I'm most fascinated about about these gold rushes is the way they produce new cities and towns. Um, you know, contemporaries describe them as almost creating uh, cities and towns by magic. You know, these these great kind of um, urban centres spring up uh, where there'd been very small communities before. The, the classic example here, I guess, would be San Francisco, um, which is a city I, I think. Um, most of us are pretty familiar with is, is this sort of large Western American city. In 1848, just when the gold's discovered, San Francisco has about 800 people. Um, you know, within within a very short space of time, that grows to 20,000 people, and within a decade, it's risen to about 50,000 people. Um, and that's, of course, just a fraction of the thousands of people who are passing through the city on their way to the gold mines. Um, I suppose in other, in terms of other significant developments, the the appearance of all this gold is of course very important to the development of international capitalism. Um, the gold uh, circulating in the world economy facilitates trade. Um, it drives up prices and wages. And and what's really interesting is the way in which some of the great kind of thinkers of the time become interested in what this means for the world economy. Um, Karl Marx, for instance, who's sitting around um, thinking about you know the end of capitalism and the, the sort of communist uh, world that he wants to see develop um, is really fascinated by the development of the Californian and Australian gold rushes because he sees all these gold this gold as being a way in which bourgeois society is going to endure for a bit longer you know the communist revolution is going to be kicked down the road a bit longer by the appearance of all this gold and then, and then I guess I mean there's many more we could talk about I guess the other main change I'd zero in on is the way in which gold um, leads to the expansion of the American and British empires. You know, the discovery of gold in California is vital in understanding that extension of America to the west coast of the United States. Um, likewise, in places like Australia, you know, obviously um, colonial settlement had taken place before the gold rushes, but 
many of the places where the gold is found had been pretty thinly um, governed by the British Empire. Um, and the arrival of the gold and the, the appearance of all the settlers really tightens the grip of the empire um, into those gold regions. The, the other changes that we, we may perhaps come back to talk about is, of course, the effects on um, the environments of the gold fields. Um, gold rushes as the miners are toiling away, tearing up at the earth, proves to be simply devastating for the environments of the gold regions. Um, in places like California, for instance, the rivers uh, still suffer from mercury that was left there by the miners in the 19th century. And of course, these, none of these miners were invading into empty spaces when they came rushing for the gold. So the, the impact of gold on indigenous communities um, right around the world and on other groups of um, people who'd been living in those regions previously uh, is an area that we're doing a lot more study on at the moment. And um, my colleague at Melbourne University, David Goodman, uh, has explained that you know if you wanted to engineer an invasion, what better way to do it than a gold rush? You know you have this this army of mainly young men rushing into an area. They're all got gold fever, um, desperate to 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 get their hands on the land and the riches beneath. And the impacts of this on in indigenous and other communities proves devastating in many parts of the of the world. So, what becomes clear is that were there no gold rush, we would be living in a very different world today, possibly a world that was much more like the pre-19th century world. Yeah, it's a great question. You raise one of the big questions that gold rush historians argue about. Gold rushes do lead to this sort of rapid development at very high speed. Um, and yet there's some things about them that, uh, you know, in some ways hark back to a pre-industrial age. A lot of gold mining, um, at least in the early stages, is done with sort of pre-industrial technology. You know, in the early days of gold rushes, they're pick and pan type um, operations, although before long they move on to large scale industrial gold mining. So, so that question of um, gold, gold, I suppose, strikes me as being important for global history um, in that it's a great accelerator many of these processes of that you're talking about of industrialization of modernization um, are, are sped up by the sort of frenzy that the rush for gold encourages but they would have happened anyway I think yeah, I think you could see a lot of the changes that take place um, were in train already on the eve of the gold rushes but the gold rushes that acceleration is really pretty dramatic I mean in, to give you an example um, if you look at old pictures of Gold Rush San Francisco, one of the most compelling images you see is the bay um, absolutely full of abandoned ships. Um, so essentially what happens is everyone from around the world rushes to San Francisco. Um, the captains think this is a great idea, we'll go and sell our goods and we'll, we'll carry the people to San Francisco. What a great way to make money. But the problem is, of course, when everyone gets it, they all abandon ship and run run to the gold fields. So those early photos of San Francisco, there's always this sort of forest of masts above the water. Um, and what happens is those abandoned ships basically mean uh, that, that era of the US merchant marine essentially gets abandoned in the bay at San Francisco. So what you have is the shipping industry then needs to um, to upgrade to replace all these ships. And so the transition to things like new forms of shipping technology partly come about by the fact that all the old ones are left to rot in the bay at San Francisco, where they, where they do all sorts of interesting jobs like becoming jails and brothels and hotels um, for the people who are living there. So these... these uh, w even today when there's archaeological um, digs in the city district down by the waterfront in San Francisco, you know, they find these ships um, under the foundations of buildings and so on. So that l gives you one sense, I guess, of the way in which gold can, can speed up those transformations.
Wow, San Francisco must be a great place to go diving. All those abandoned ships now under the water. There's um, well, what's interesting you can see in San Francisco, particularly the way that land reclamation has taken place. So the the city essentially sort of extended to meet these old ships. So when they find them now, they're actually a reasonable distance inland um, because you can see the way that the city grew out to the sea to meet these to to meet these ships into the bay. Um, and it's a, I mean, a fascinating story. I guess the, the people often talk about the ingenuity of gold rush communities, and certainly um, that type of improvisation um, is a is a marked feature that you see in gold rush communities in all in all sorts of ways. You know, people arriving in these communities without the support networks or infrastructure that they knew at home, so they have to make do with what they could. But there was there was one contemporary observer who used to look at the San Francisco uh, waterfront district, which is built on all these ships, and used to it talked about it as a Venice of Pine um, and said that it swayed noticeably. <laughs> what kind of people went rushing for gold? Yeah, people from all walks of life, really. Um, in terms of uh, the makeup of the community on the gold rushes, I suppose traditionally historians, um, to put it simply, we might say a lot of the history of the gold rush has been very pale and male. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, that reflects the fact that a, a large proportion of the people who went rushing for gold tended to be um, young single men, predominantly from uh, the eastern states of America or from northern Europe. So there is this predominant of, of what, predominant population of white young men who go gold rushing. Um, what's changed a little bit uh, as a result of a lot of painstaking research in recent years is that historians have started to recapture the history of those communities who are left out of older histories of the gold rushes. Um, and so we've learned a lot in the last 20 years in particular um, about some of the other ethnic communities who arrived on the gold fields, about indigenous communities who are very active on the gold fields, um, and the role of women and children in gold rush communities. Uh, in Australia, um, to give you an example, I mean, one of the areas that we've we've learnt most about in recent years would be the Chinese community. Um, and around the world, um, our best estimate is that Chinese gold miners made up probably more than 25% of all the people who went gold rushing. Um, and in Victoria, for instance, for a time in colonial Victoria, um, if we were to go by the, the, the census records that we have from the time, roughly one in five men might have been Chinese. So... Certainly when I think about the, the history of the gold rush that I was taught as a, as a primary school student um, and the, the history of the gold rush I grew up with, that kind of fact just completely transforms for me what the gold rush was. Um, another community who have, of course, learnt a lot about in recent years is the Indigenous community um, here in Victoria, uh, where, we're, where we're recording today. Um, traditionally, Indigenous communities tended to be either left out of gold rush history or although it was almost written as if gold rushes were something that happened to Indigenous communities. They, they were given very little account of the role that Indigenous communities played or how they experienced the gold rushes. Um, and through a lot of painstaking research over the last few years, historians have really recovered the way um, you know, Aboriginal people not only knew where the minerals were, they, did, they didn't place a a spiritual or a monetary value on the gold um, in the same way that the, the new incoming Europeans did. But they certainly had a sense of the, the mineral characteristics of, of their um, traditional lands. Um, and then once they realised that these Europeans wanted the gold, you know, Aboriginal people were very active on the gold, gold fields as mines. Um, some were certainly mining. Um, there were Aboriginal people who worked in the police. Um, and so they played an active role uh, in these gold rush communities. One of my uh, colleagues in, um, in our book actually has, has found the story 
um, of uh, some of the there's a small number of Aboriginal men who apparently travel to the California goldfields, whom whom we know very little about, but just give you a sense of of how this research is evolving and how that picture is um, being enriched. And speaking of Australians who travelled to the Californian goldfields, I understand they weren't always terribly popular. Yes, just 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 about the worst um, uh, ID you could have turning up in Australia in California. Sorry, was to say you'd come from Australia. Um, the news of the California gold rush I mentioned, uh, the gold is found in Sutter's Mill. Uh, we're talking about 170 years ago, so it's in January uh, 1870, 1848. Sorry, um, when the gold is found at Sutter's Mill, just near Sacramento, and. The news takes a little while to get to Australia. It comes here via Hawaii and gets here just before Christmas at the end of the year. And so the following year, people start setting out from Sydney and from Hobart to join the rush to California. Uh, the numbers are a little um, iffy. We're not entirely sure of the accuracy, but we, at best guess, we think it's between about ten and 11,000 people who go from the Australian colonies to San Francisco. Um, and so the, the San Francisco we were just talking about with the, the buildings built on ships and the, the rapidly growing town, um, if you were walking through San Francisco in, say, 1850, maybe one in ten people would have come from the Australian colonies. So it's a pretty significant minority. Uh, now, most of those people are there to do what everyone else is there to do. They're, they're interested in mining gold and improving their fortunes. Um, the people who come from the Australian colonies are distinct in a few ways. There's a, there's a reasonably large Irish population amongst them, and they seem more likely to travel as families than, than people from other parts of the world. But what actually distinguishes the Australians most, of course, is the reputation that we're all nasty convicts. Um, the problem is that uh, amongst the Australians who go, there are a bunch of particularly nasty convicts um, who become known as the Sydney Ducks um, and for a time are probably the most hated group of people in Gold Rush San Francisco. The, the red light district of the city is known as Sydney Town or Sydney Valley um, and the Australians in California are implicated in a series of particularly terrible fires and other crimes. And essentially what happens is in those early days in San Francisco where official law and order is very thin on the ground, um, government institutions are very thin on the ground, the people come together to deal with this problem of law and order um, by forming committees of vigilance. And essentially what they do is, uh, is set about capturing the criminals who a large number are Australians, um, stopping and turning back the boats that come from Sydney and famously actually executing um, four of these Sydney ducks, which, which as you can imagine, um, sends a great uh, shock through the Australian community in California who um, by that stage are starting to head home because the news has been found of gold in New South Wales and Victoria, um, but are also being made very uncomfortable staying in California. So probably a good idea to get on the boat and come back to, to Sydney or Hobart or, or Melbourne. And once they got back here, they uh, behaved better? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the real troublemakers seem to have only been a fairly small group. The, the problem was what always happens in that situation, of course, is that everyone is associated with the, the troublemakers. Um, when, when the gold rush came here, um, about 10,000 Americans came to the Australian gold rushes, many of whom who'd been in California and had lived through these experiences. And so that, that tension really carried over into the Australian gold rushes. For the, in, during the early days of the Australian gold rushes, um, 
uh, there was great anxiety about the Americans and, and the ideas that they might bring back with them from California. Certainly many had bought their guns and their Bowie knives, um, but they had also bought, of course, their ideas about republicanism, um, their dislike of, of British tyranny as they saw it. And so the Americans in Victoria for a time presented a group that many people were, were anxious about, particularly after you'd seen the way in which um, British subjects from Australia had been treated in California only a few months earlier. So the Americans didn't like the Australians very much, and when the gold rush moved, the Australians weren't that keen on the Americans. Yeah, there's a, there's a wonderful old gold rush song, actually, which, um, as far as I can tell, seems to have been sung on boats while oh, people were coming back. Oh, do sing it back. for us. Well, I'm afraid I, uh, I've got a small cold, so I won't sing it for you, but I'll give you the gist. It, do, it does talk about really how... Um, you know, how these Australians have been mistreated in California as they see it by these American vigilantes. And essentially the, the, the theme of the song is, you know, you'll get your comeuppance when you get to Sydney or Melbourne. So there does seem to have been that, that hostility there amongst certain groups. Um, I should rush to point out, though, that uh, in the end it seems from most of the studies we have that the Americans um, are fairly well behaved. They're, they're, they're a group, though, that we still, I think, have a lot more to learn about. Um, some of the links between the Australian and, and Californian gold rushes, including things like um, uh, the events of Eureka, which take place in Ballarat in 1854, but also things like the sort of anti-Chinese sentiment which grows up on the gold fields, um, clearly are partly linked to this connection between Australia and California. Um, and that's still an area that historians are learning a lot about. So the events of Eureka, which most... Uh listeners will know was of course the rebellion against the uh, British rulers and the taxes they imposed. Um, was that unusual, that kind of rebellion on the goldfields? Well, there'd been a mounting um, dissatisfaction with the licence fee, uh, which, which is essentially the licence that you pay to mine for gold. Um, in America, uh, the federal go the land, um, the gold had mainly been found on, on federal land. Um, but the government had not made any attempt to tax the miners, in, in essence, because it didn't really have the resources to do it. Um, and so people mining in America had had this experience of essentially mining on their own terms. Um, in Australia, it was very different. I mean, in theory, the, the, the Crown owned the rights to, the, to the, the gold and silver that was found on British Crown lands. And so the system that the colonial authorities come up with is that miners will pay a licence for the right to dig the gold. Now, one of the problems that happens in Victoria is the way the licence system is implemented. Essentially, it's very expensive, um, which makes it hard if you're just starting out as a gold miner, if you have to pay this fee before you can even um, theoretically start bringing gold out of the ground. And the enforcement of the licence fee becomes increasingly draconian, um, which, which leads to this resentment against the miners. And this had been growing for some time um, before we get to Eureka uh, at the end of 1854. Um, and I think in thinking about the global history of these events, I mean, Eureka, I think, is interesting because... Uh, Certainly we think of it as this iconic moment of Australian history, the diggers standing up against the tyranny of the British government, of, um, of, of demanding a better deal and, and the, the, the results of the Eureka Stockade leading to um, a, a sort of democratic reform. Um, which is very important within Australian history. But even there, you can start to see the influence of a lot of um, global uh, uh, ideas and, and, and people from overseas coming in and shaping events. So the, the Chartist movement, which had been taking place in Britain in the preceding period, um, is very important in framing the ideas of the miners. Uh, 
the uh, we have an Italian revolutionary, Raffaella Carbone, who's one of the leaders, one of the great characters of Eureka, um, and who writes a book afterwards, which becomes one of the the great sources on it. Um, and again, to come back to our Americans, you know, we have the involvement of American miners who particularly can't stand. The, the tyranny that they see the British government enforcing after the freedom that they've known in California. Um, and after the trial, uh, uh, sorry, after the Eureka stockade even, when, when the miners go to trial um, and a certain number go for treason, the, the first person tried, you know, is in fact an African-American man named John Joseph who travelled to the Australian goldfields. And so even in an event as iconic as Eureka, um, you know, once we start scratching the surface, you can see all these global international dimensions coming through. And at a time when we often talk about globalisation, it is really interesting to understand that it's well and truly a phenomenon that started at least 150 years ago. Thank you, Ben Mountford, for opening a golden window on the past. That's it from us today. Thanks to ACU Media Production students James Mitchell and Trey Karunaratna, who are producing this podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to review and share it so other people can find it. I'm Deborah Stone. And you've been listening to Human Matters.